Because when I hear emails especially, and they even scoffed about this. I, I watched a lot of interviews with them and a lot of teachings with them and that. And or when someone's asking, well, according to their pre-mail view, and several of them, <laughs> well, you know, we it, it's amazing that, you know, people take this argument from a place only, you know, a word only used once in Scripture. I mean, that's so dismissive. So using your own philosophical, worldly understanding. You know, and it's interesting, in church history, those of you that have been here, they'll talk about that. This is nothing new. If you remember when we talked about the church fathers in the beginning, in the very beginning, had to deal with these same things. Had to deal with other people that gave too much credence to worldly philosophy and somehow, whether knowingly or unknowingly, were mixing it in with their biblical understanding and therefore bringing about error. Now, how serious can that error become? No, <laughs> it can become very serious, right? You know, but... Just to remind, not to, we'll go there, but if you recall, and those of you watching and listening, you just go back and, you know, and look at the last teachings. But when, when talking about, you know, how Revelation 20 gives us the full understanding, because until that time you read places, and it seems like there are places that seem to think, when the Lord returns, Right? Then he'll judge, he'll sever the wicked from the just. And, but there's obviously a period of time. Revelation 20 is the, one, is the first place, right? It's the last words. He finally tells us there will be a period of time between that. And then that finally answers to us all the Old Testament passages that talk about a time on earth that's like none other this earth has ever seen, but falls well short of the eternal blessed state where there's no sin, where there's no unrighteousness, where there's no death. And then we looked at, and these things just go together because in a way there's differences between A-mill and post-mill, but in a way they still hold upon a lot of the same scriptures and interpret a lot of them the same way. You know, but you can dismiss a lot of what they teach just by understanding that they, in one way or another, allegorize, spiritualize, just dismiss so much other scripture that's talking about the end times. And, and sometimes they go, why, why hold so much of the end times? Well, right, it helps us to, you know, put another, call it, call it another stone in our house of theology, right? It helps make it fuller, richer, healthier. Because when we understand that, you know, as I talked about before, if you remember from even in Luke 19, what are the, what's the full understanding when you take all of Scripture? And, and it's this. All of Scripture is tied together. When we take all Scripture together, we can come to establish a deep, thorough understanding of Scripture, and we will have a healthy theology that will direct our thoughts and therefore direct our actions. In my view is this, and this is basically the old historical, classical, premillennial view that was the overall dominant view for the first several hundred years of the church until they started getting, I'll call it the school of spiritualization going and 
And that started changing a lot of biblical interpretation. But uh, my view is this, and we Christians are to live for Christ, meaning we stand for truth, proclaim truth, proclaim the gospel, trust Christ through it all. We should expect persecution and trials, but we should be able to rest in Christ, understanding that God is bringing out his perfect will through this all. We are told we shall suffer for him if we're living for him, but that we can rest knowing that he is faithful. That is overwhelmingly what the scriptures teach us. You know, I say that to say all again. I like where, when I watch a lot of these people when they discuss the difference between name mill, post mill, pre mill, they defend their two positions and attack the other positions. If you look at premillennialism, you look at everything, uh, not lost, you're getting back to Luke 19, and that's how it ties in with this. The scriptures teach us, right, the Lord died for all his people's sins. All of us that put our trust and faith in him are saved, we're forgiven our sins, we're justified, we're sealed against, that, against the day of judgment, right? We have eternal life. And the scriptures teach us he ascended up into heaven. We're waiting for the day he will return. He surely will return. During that time, we, all Christians, for all the time, waiting for his return, are to serve him with all our heart, mind, and strength. That is what the scriptures teach. And when you... Uh, and it just helps us to understand, I think, make some sense of it when we go, maybe we see things get real bad, and then we'll see some moments, some moments of, like, reprieve, or things are real bad for us, right? When we take all the scripture together, and the way we teach here, right, understanding he's in charge of it all, and now he tells us, especially Revelation 20, well, again, he, he's, got, he's got a perfect plan. It, it's, it, it's all worked out. It helps explain so much stuff in scripture. It, it's so... Funny that on the one hand, you get some of them, well, many of the teachers I listen to, especially on the post-mill side, they talk about uh, how, well, it's a process. You know, James White talks about this openly, so I'll tell you, he, he shares it on there, they want it. And this, I guess, in his way is saying, see, here, here, here's how it really is, and here's how I came to see it. And we talked about this the other week, but 1 Corinthians 15. And he went there and he, and he said he saw it one day. Oh, it's a process. And somehow when he sees in 1 Corinthians, uh, he saw a process there about the last thing he destroyed is death. And he sees a process. Oh, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we're going to take over the world for Christ. We're going to, the church. That's their teaching. That's their teaching. We are to take the world over for Christ. That's what we have to understand and get it ready for Christ. Then once we Christianize the world, Christ will return. Okay. Now, either way you want to slice it up, that's actually diminishing the glory and power that belongs to Christ alone, even though we are members of his body. It does not actually teach that anywhere in Scripture. And the reason I say that is this, when we're, Obviously told 
in Matthew 24, and correspondingly in Luke, talking about the same place, and in Revelation, and in First and Second Thessalonians, and in Second Peter, but and in Jude, but we are definitely told that he's going to return. He's going to return unto a world that is just wicked, and he's going to, you know, and he's going to judge. Now, we can get get into the particulars about that. About uh, well, who's going to populate the millennial world? But they don't get into that. They just they just get into saying, "Well, we're going to Christianize the world." Actually, I don't get how they. There's no clear teaching that says that anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere, they have allegorized things to see it in Scripture, and you know, and I think that's important because that that is my opinion that they do a disservice. They do a disservice to Christ when they look upon that. Okay. If you want to turn to Matthew 28, and we're going to look at this, and then Lord Lord willing, kind of finish that, and then I'll talk more, we'll get more specific about premillennialism and all about it, but I want you to see just the errors and that there is actually no scripture that clearly teaches the other views. There just isn't. Okay, so on the post-mill side, here's what they say. Matthew 28, of course, we're all famous with that near the end of it, right? The Great Commission. Believe it or not, that, that, is, that is one of their big verses. That's one of their overarching, overarching verses that holds up in their eyes, according to their own best teachers, their doctrine. In Matthew 28, starting out with verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, or actually unto the end of the age. Right? The, the church age. Until right? it, he'll always be, I mean, he'll always be with us, but amen. All right. Here's how they break that down. Now, since in verse 18, all power is given unto him, that means all power is given unto the church. We need to recognize he has all power. Therefore, we are to take that power and reign with it in his name. And if we believe that and we trust it enough in that, it will start to happen. <clears throat> verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, say all nations, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. So their interpretation of that is that all power is given unto him. We are to go, therefore, and teach not only the gospel, but God's law unto all nations and telling them to observe it. Right? And he commands us to do so. Well, what they seem to forget is, right, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, first they've got to be regenerated and come to faith. There's a big problem with what they teach right there because the way they get it, and teach all nations. Now, that, that's fine on the same saying, you know, we, we would agree with the fact that, yes, as a Christian, there's no problem with getting involved in politics, but do it according to God's Ways, and when we stand up there, don't compromise, you know. Don't just get up there, for instance, and talk about, 
hey, the economy's bad, tell them, well, we're under judgment because of this sin, that sin, the other sin, right? We're to call sin, sin. But to take this and say somehow it's some kind of commandment to go therefore and uh, basically put theonomy but God's law in all the nations, well, whatever you believe on that, you can't use this verse to do that. He's talking about go therefore, preach the gospel, everyone will believe, baptize them, and then disciple them and bring them up. So, and they're believing in large amounts of people, you know, coming coming into the church. And you can argue that thing. Yeah, there's been a lot of so-called professing believers in a lot in the last 40 years or so. And it's amazing that wickedness is growing even worse. And harassing the church is growing even worse. And what I worry about studying church history, this whole movement upon to Christianize or, you know, uh, Christianize the whole world... It, on a government standpoint, using this, I don't know, they did the same thing, and that's how the, that's one of the reasons the Holy Roman Catholic Church came about to be. They wanted to get into all the, all the people. They wanted to attract all the people, and they started taking a lot of their traditions onto them. I'll just say that, but you, you, can't, right, you can't misuse Scripture like that, and I think they do. Of course, that's the way they see it, because here's another thing. Go back to Matthew chapter 13. Now, Matthew chapter 13, uh, first I'll just read, uh, go to verse 31. Now, remember, first he was just talking with the parable of sowing the seed, right? Then he explained that parable, right? The seed's the word, the sower's the son of God, and then, you know, of course, we can take that us through him, right? We produce a seed. Some will accept it, right? And we'll be saved and produce fruit. But many will reject it, right? And they're the tares, and they'll always be here unto the end. There's another thing that goes in with eschatology. Until the end, both are here. Children of the kingdom and the children of the devil. The wheat and the tares. They're both here unto the end, until the gathering. You know, but while they receive that, they read 31 and 32. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. So they say that one is describing the gospel, taking over a whole community, our nation, Christianizing a nation. That is what they teach. And I would say this, I read on some, and even uh, John MacArthur, for instance, and others see it this way. When you go back, there's places in Scripture that references, you know, that the people of God are God and being under, you know, being under him and that, or you protect you, you know, like birds coming into a nest and things like that. I'd say, well, okay, or you could take that to even say, well, okay, the, you know, that some places the gospel will have, will have prominence, but... Where, in all honesty, where can you get that your your that right that whole community is going to be almost totally Christianized? They take the other one. Thirty three is another one. Another parable spake he unto them: The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. According to them, that's as we preach God's word, 
right? It'll eventually take over that society, and they'll be, they'll be Christianized. <clears throat> I'd say this to that. Now, first of all, I take in that. Well, first I'll say this. <laughs> we can't say those two parables mean one thing, and then go off, because he said, you can liken the kingdom of heaven unto this. Well, he also says he can liken the kingdom of heaven to some other things, too. So uh, drop down there to uh, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden in the field, the which when a man hath found, personalized, he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he has and buyeth that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, end of the age, Right? The angels will come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. Again, eschatology going in there. But it's interesting. So he compares it to right, a, 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 small, a, a small seed being grown, that's, but it becomes an immense tree. It becomes strong. It becomes healthy. Right? He compares it like unto leaven, which when you're adding it, eventually right, your whole loaf will be leavened. He compares it unto a man finding a treasure in the field, right? And he realizes that, you know, it's the greatest thing ever. It's worth more than anything. So he goes and sells all the worldly things he has, all the other worldly things he has, and according to obtain that, right? And then the pearl great price, same, same analogy. And then, of course, then he puts the last one into, of course, this will draw in, draw in some, right? And others will be rejected. Again, you can't just say two of them talk about, you know, because they can't use the other three that way, obviously, but they want to take two, take them out of context, and they want to put a new meaning on them according to their understanding of other scriptures that they see mean this or that. Again, when not read clearly. Everything's allegorized to some extent, because it must be, because clearly scripture teaches I mean, it, it teaches what? We, we know that from a scripture. I don't want to repeat that because it's so obvious, right, that he's going to return. And what does he tell us? I don't want to get into this, but first of all, when, when he returns, right, we see throughout scripture, we're told throughout our whole time waiting for him and serving him, we should expect persecution. You know, we should, should expect trials. Not every day, every moment. We don't go out seeking it. But we're supposed to live for him. And the more we live for him, the more these type of things will happen. But we can rest in assured in him, knowing, A, he won't give us beyond what we're able to take. And then in the end, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We'll go with him. We'll go with him before he returns, or we'll be called on high when he returns. But scripture is abundant with talking about he'll return in judgment. And when he says, when he says himself, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? What's the implication there. There won't be any. When he talks about, right, the road is narrow, and few there be that find it, but the road is wide, and many be that go that way. What does it say? The majority of the world doesn't come to him. 
Again, nothing, no clear teaching in Scripture supports either of amillennial or postmillennial views. And I just want to say, my dear brethren, that that hold to those views, I would just say, I would just say, read Scripture and realize this: that clear teaching would reject those views. And it, it's not a reason not to fellowship with people on that, but I'd say on the on the views, it just it diminishes God's word. The, the way I look at it is, for one, when you say that the church, and it may sound good because you're saying, well, I'll give all the glory to Christ, but at the same time, all the scriptures that talk about, well, for instance, Matthew 28, when he says, all power has been given unto me. Well, they say, well, therefore go and we'll conquer the world for Christ. Well, he doesn't say there anywhere to what degree he's going to exert that power. We're all, what we are told that he'll fully exert that power in a much greater way after he returns. And that's according to Old Testament scriptures, but finally clearly taught in Revelation 20. When they want to say it's only taught once, again, it's very clear where it's taught. And we could just say the same about the Trinity. Now, myself, I'm a big one to saying, they'll say, well, the Trinity is not clearly taught anywhere in scripture. I'd say, yes, it is, 1 John 5, 7. Of course, the modern Bibles have all taken that out. But even without that, right, the doctrine of the Trinity is come, we come to it, and none of these people will deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but how do you come to it? By studying Scripture. And you'll see the systematic going through Scripture, you come up with an undeniable case that we understand that the Godhead is triune in nature, right? We understand one God three persons, right? All fully God, right? All holy, all just, all right. You know, we just understand that. And, you know, yeah, he's God. We're not. But we understand, and we don't deny there's not a trinity. But there's actually more teaching about the surety of him coming again in judgment, and there being one of the reign. There's more teaching about that than there is about the trinity, and yet they deny it. I don't understand why, except the, the big argument, and we'll finish with a big argument and a big gain in postmillennialism lately is saying that, in a sense, because a lot of the church has kind of neglected its duty, according to them, and you know we've allowed secularism, ungodliness, and sin to run rampant in society without trying to put any checks to it. And I'll say there is something to that charge. But I'll also say this, that A, we know that eventually the world is going to become very, very evil and sinful before his return. So it was going to happen. But also to the degree of, I would say, yes, Christians shouldn't have pulled out of this, should have, shouldn't have pulled out of, in, generally speaking, shouldn't have pulled out of the schools and politics and things like that. They should have been involved. But at the same time, those have stayed in, but without compromise. And I would say this, if they want to test out to see how good this theory is going to work of theirs, well, just find out. And here, here's basically where it sits. And uh, the gospel and being a Christian and uh, you know, preaching and teaching, overall, overall, generally speaking, for the church, what the world hears today is this. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He has a great plan for your life. Just say yes to him. Believe on him. Repeat this prayer after me. 
and everything's going to be okay. Everything will be great. Or, you know, it, well, who's going to have a problem with that? If some people will, but generally speaking, right, they don't have a problem with that. We don't get people upset when we say that. Or you might, you know, and we might just say, uh, okay, well, uh, you know, repeat this prayer to me, or, you know, give Jesus a chance, or it, nothing according to Scripture. So we preach Jesus, well, you know, Jesus died for your sins, and believe on him, and you're forgiven all your sins. And then we just leave it at that. Now, actually, the person professes Christ, well, then we hold him to a higher standard, right? Because the fruit, a regenerated person produces fruit, period. But what if we tell those same worldly, unsaved people, You're under the judgment of God and you're an enemy of God because of the sin in your life. Because you are sinners. You know, and we, we could tell them, well, you're sin because you are a sinner, but you're a sinner worthy of judgment, just as we were. And what I mean by that word, right, we've been saved, we've been regenerated, we've been born of the Spirit, right? But we still, but for the grace of God, would still be under his judgment. Now we tell them, now he tells you to believe on him, and now that you have believed on him, repent of your sins. Live for him. You know, I should say, try to live for him, right? For, forsake the world. Oh, then we're going to start running into some opposition. And that's what I'm saying Christ has called us to do. Christ has called us to live for him. Now, we don't go out trying to offend people, but the fact is, let us live for him. And as the old saying go, let the chips fall where they may. But we know, right, we know our house, <laughs> right, is God's house. God's in charge. God will take care of us. He's already promised us. He's already promised us eternal life. He's promised he keeps us safe in his arms. We trust in him. And then he says, right, serve me. I ask you to serve me. And right in the scriptures say, it's, entirely unreasonable and actually you know in a sense they're illogical it's stupid to think otherwise we're to serve him nothing's changed from the old testament where we serve him the thing that's changed right there away from the messiah the messiah has come we count in his grace when we slip and we fall up when in his grace when we do good we know it's his power when we can overcome the sin which is going to power to do in our lives it's by the grace and power of god it's like we use these scriptures to go up on that and I just say that to, well, to say there's no problem, and they'll come against premillennialists just to expect, oh, you're expecting judgment. No, the world will be more Christianized. No, we can go and preach the gospel, hoping and believing that, some, that, that people will hear it. But our responsibility solely rests upon Speaking truth, standing for truth, preaching the true gospel. What they do with it, how they accept it, is up to God. And that's the whole thing about this. This thing just twisted upon it, like lays some responsibility upon the church that it, the scriptures just say we do not possess, we do not have. We should not expect. You know, that's what gets me. Like, Amelie, it's like, sit back. And both of them, they can charge you with this. You can sit back on the sidelines and just say, well, the Lord's going to return. 
But it says we're to serve him. Luke 19 makes that clear. Scripture makes it clear we are to serve him. And we'll be, we'll be judged and gain or lose rewards accordingly to that. And, it, and like I said before, he expects it. He commands it. And we're, we're, go, he, we're going to lose rewards, not our salvation, for being disobedient but for not serving him and not in fear. So we can go out and, for instance, they tell us at work, you got to start using pronouns. We can say, but God made them male and female. This other stuff is a bunch of malarkey. You know, it, we, don't, it, we don't even really, we don't necessarily have to quote scripture word for word, but that actually is where for God made them male and female. Therefore, since they're male or female, a man can do whatever he wants to his body, or he can call himself whatever he wants. I'll call him, we as Christians are to call him a man. A woman likewise can do whatever they want to their body. They can call themselves whatever they want, demand to be called any certain thing. We as Christians must call them a woman. That's just one example of that. And let the chess fall where they may. But when we try to excuse it away, you know, for that, or whether it's, you know, it's trans, whatever all this garbage is, or CT, we just take a stand for truth. And when, if, we, if we don't do that and we say, well, maybe I'll lose my job or I'm going to do that, it's just a sign actually we're in fear and we're actually trusting, we're trusting our future and our well-being basically to the worldly system and not unto God. For we should never, never, there's an old saying someone told me before, because I turned my own brother in for breaking the law. Hardest, one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. You know, because I grew up that old worldly thing. Oh, man, you, you know, it's fa he's family. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he gave me one simple word of advice that I'll never forget. It, it was profound, really. Howard, it's never wrong to do the right thing. For us to live according to Scripture is always the right thing. And we shouldn't excuse or say, well, because these people live this way and they say they believe this, well, no, if they believe this, that, and the other thing, if they believe the Scripture, if they believe that Christ is going to return, well, then you should also believe that they're a Christian and that they're living for Christ. And if you're living for Christ, you're not to sit on your blessed assurance. So you know, I'm just saying we have to take Scripture and we read it clearly except when to do so would clearly contradict other teaching. But like I said, Revelation 20, when you read it, yeah, I believe there is some symbolism in there. Or, or maybe it's not. Maybe the thousand years is a little or a thousand years. Or it's a long period of time. Either way, you, you, you can only read it as after Christ returns. There's going to be a long length of time that he's going to reign with us. And I'll just say this. It, one of the, it, not just that, but a New Testament verse talks about in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, it talks about when he returns, the saints will rule the nations with him with a rod of iron. So if after he returns, if everyone's saved and it's only believers, well, what are, who are the saints ruling over the nations with a rod of iron over? Who's that? It's just like Scripture clearly teaches a premillennial. It's premillennialism. Now, there's variations of that premillennialism that even premillennialists disagree with. You know, we have some things on that. But the crux of it is clear. He's going to return. We're waiting for his return. While we're waiting for his return, we serve him with all his kin. Not that we won't fall short, but we're to serve him. 
our whole life waiting for him, right? When he returns, then, right, he, all believers will be clothed from on high, right? We'll see resurrection bodies, and we'll rule and reign with him for a long period of time. Then there's a rebellion, and then he puts it down, and then the eternal estate. And then the plan of God is accomplished. Then, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and they, they take that in the wrong way. They don't put a gap in there, but then the end. Right? As far as his dealings with man is concerned, he has saved his people. He has brought all his people unto Christ's likeness. So with that, uh, anyone have any, any last comments or questions? Well, okay. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, and let us close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the Spirit, for sending your son. We thank you for your great, great gift of salvation. We thank you that you have showered us with so many blessings, but especially your blessings of your loving kindness, mercy, (laughs) and just your blessing of righteousness, for you imputed Christ's righteousness upon us. Oh, Lord, we... We can't understand it all, Lord, but you have given us your word to understand what you want us to understand, and the rest we can just leave for you. We don't have to figure everything out. We, we, we just attempt and trust on you to understand what you have revealed to us. Lord, Lord, help us and empower us, to Lord, to live the lives you have called us to live, Lord. Help us to lay aside all worldliness, burn the dross from our lives, refine the gold. And Lord, may we be your good and faithful witnesses in this community, in whatever position you have put us in. And may you be glorified through it all. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven through it all. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.